Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we have the privilege to engage this very rich subject matter that is theology of the body. This is an evening, Thursday evening, that is about studying Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies, which in of itself is a reflection and commentary to the first half of Benedict XVI's work, God is Love. So by studying Christopher West, we're studying Benedict XVI. And quite honestly, John Paul II and anyone who had anything to say about this very rich subject matter. Now, that being said, as I noted last week, I would have Chris Seibert and Derek Allen back with me. Chris Seibert is sick, so he was unable to join us this evening, but I do have Derek Allen with me. So Derek, great to have you with me this evening. Thanks again for having me back, Joe. It's a crying shame that Chris isn't able to join us. We wish him a speedy recovery so we can have him back in the next recording, next show. So, Derek, last week as we were wrapping up the program, we had the chance to just get started into Chapter 8. And Chapter 8, of course, is titled Union and the Eucharist. And what lies at the heart of this chapter that we will be discussing in, in upcoming weeks is that in the Eucharist, Jesus Christ enters into a bridal union with our very souls. We so often hear it said, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, think of it. Does it get any more personal than that to actually receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, that his divine blood is streaming through our veins? It's an extraordinary thing, a very organic thing. Now, Derek, in speaking to the intimate nature of our encounter with Christ, this very organic encounter with Christ in the Eucharist, let us illustrate further by considering the pink flamingo. I mean, what makes the flamingo pink? Well, the pink flamingo has a very selective diet. It it consists of organisms that are high in this pigment called carotenoids. So the flamingo eats such a high concentration of these pigments that it actually turns their exterior a shade of beautiful pink, this rosy-colored pink. Their feathers, their legs, huh? By many accounts, this transformation is a wonder of creation. Now, just as the pink flamingo is selective in its dietary intake of a certain kind of organism, which is everyone marveling at its pronounced shade of beauty, so should we be selective in our spiritual diet, receiving the life-giving organism of the Eucharist, that we, like the pink flamingo, and even more, would possess a new shade of light that attracts and draws others around us into a more personal encounter with the incarnation of beauty, Jesus Christ. The Logos, as Benedict speaks to it there in those opening pages, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, and I think that really segues well into excerpt 49 of um, Christopher West's book, The Love That Satisfies. And excerpt 49 In and through the Eucharist, the imagery of marriage between God and Israel is now realized in a way previously inconceivable. It had meant standing in God's presence, but now it becomes union with God through sharing in Jesus' self-gift, sharing in his body and blood. 
And then Christopher West goes on to quote John Paul II, and I think it's important that we hear that quote from St. John Paul II. In the Old Testament, it is barely outlined, half open, as it were. In Ephesians, by contrast, it is fully unveiled, without ceasing to be a mystery, of course, and John Paul the Great, St. John Paul the Great, alluding to that relational analogy between Christ and each and every one of us, Christ and the church. And it's important for us when we're looking at the scripture to see that difference between the Old Testament and God's relationship with his people, and then the New Testament. Like St. John Paul the Great says, in the Old Testament, barely outlined, half open, so to speak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas then in Ephesians, as as St. Paul writes about um, husbands and wives, fully realized, fully Mm -hmm. come to fruition. And, you know, the analogy is used as the Old Testament sort of being a bride and groom's wedding day, Mm -hmm. whereas the New Testament is that wedding night, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, real fitting in light of Christ's final words on the cross in the Latin especially consummatum s it is yes. consummated yes yes which is a great line i know you have a verse from jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 34 there derek and i think that really highlights what you're talking about there as it relates to um what john paul ii was saying right jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34 behold days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." You know, Derek, there is the most fascinating truth that comes to us from that passage, and I think it is this, that it distills the essence of the Old Testament and the New Testament. What do I mean? Well, it is to first remember that in the passage that you just read for us, we have the lone usage of the phrase new covenant in the old covenant, huh? So immediately we are made to juxtapose these two covenants, the old and new, and at the same time, the two great testaments, Old Testament and New Testament. And so as Jeremiah speaks to it, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, speaks more to the external law, and the New Covenant speaks more to the internal law. I mean, think about it here, Derek. If you were to fast forward six centuries, you have Jesus Christ using the same phrase, new covenant. In fact, let us go to that passage. Mark 14, and I'll start here with verse 22 and following. This is the institution of the Last Supper. And as they were eating, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Have you heard that formula before? Took, blessed, broke, gave. And he took a chalice, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So there in verse 24, he says what? This is my blood of the new covenant. Now go back to what Jeremiah was saying when he was talking about the coming of the Messiah at the dawn of the new covenant and how the law will be inscribed upon the heart. It is to remember 
In biblical terms, law was always about relationship. What we've discovered is in the Old Testament, the law was what? Written on stone. In the New Testament and the New Covenant, the law is not only inscribed upon the heart, but in the blood of the Eucharist, it is actually streaming through our veins and pulsating with our very own heart. This is why when we receive the Eucharist, we actually have God's spiritual DNA written into our heart. A phenomenal thing. And Derek, it is no wonder, in light of the intimate terms that we use as we relate to God in light of the Eucharist, that He would use such images as bride and bridegroom and husband and wife to communicate the reality of His love. Certainly, we have many passages in the Old Testament where God uses the image of bride and bridegroom and husband and wife to talk about Israel's faithlessness, huh? Where Israel becomes a harlot. But He also uses that language to speak to that desire to be in nuptial union with man. This is most striking. Well, in, in speaking to the externality of the Old Testament, we see this image crop up from time to time. We have first Abraham and Isaac. And, and in the moment where Abraham is proving his faith on the verge of sacrificing his son, God sends a messenger to him and says, No, stop. Use this goat instead. Use this external source of blood. And then later in, in the book of Exodus, we have Moses and Passover in Egypt. How is it that the Israelites were able to save their firstborn sons? By spreading the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Mm -hmm. But again, external, a different source of blood. But then if we fast forward to the New Testament, to Christ, it is no longer something else's blood. It is truly the body and blood of Christ on the cross that acts as our eternal Passover. Mm -hmm. That is really, you know, sort of the, the culmination of everything in the Old Testament is really in the death and resurrection of Christ. Amen. And as Revelation reminds us, this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we receive our Lord in the Eucharist, we are actually entering into this nuptial union. Here we have that word again, union, this holy communion with God incarnate in His Son, Jesus Christ. And in that intimacy, we call this a marriage, right? A marriage. And this is why Revelation 19.7 speaks to this marriage supper of the Lamb. If you were to go to the word Revelation, I think certainly uh, just not for our Catholic listeners, but for our non-Catholic listeners, this is a very important word, Derek, Revelation, the Apocalypse. The Greek is apocalypsus, and it means many things. It has certain words that are tied to it, and many scholars have broken this open and, and have written dissertations on it. But what I want to do is focus in on its most common use and its most common understanding in antiquity. The Greek apocalypsus, which literally means unveiling, isn't just the lifting of the veil. It was tied to a much uh, grander event. What do I mean? Well, the Apocalypse was about a seven-day event where the groom would get to know the family of the bride and, and the bride's family would get to know uh, the family of the groom. It literally was a seven-day party. And certainly the number seven is significant here because seven is just not that number that speaks to perfection in the Hebrew mind, but it is the number tied to covenant life with God. So this was very important. Well, the apocalypse, the unveiling, happened on the seventh day. Well, well what happened on the seventh day? Well, the groom would 
take his bride and lift her up into this canopy, and he would take her into this honeymoon suite, this tent, if you will, okay? And it was at the moment that the groom lifted the veil of the bride that the consummatum happened, right? So the unveiling is synonymous with consummation because, of course, what do you do on your wedding night? You consummate your wedding vows, and in doing so, two become one. So when you read the book of Revelation, even in its opening verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, if you're reading this in the first century, Derek, (laughs) you're reading this in light of what we are talking about now. And is this not rich in light of Revelation 19.7 and so many other verses that speak to the nuptiality, the marriage supper that we enter into uh, with Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? And I think if you look at the Old Testament, a book that really attests to that meaning of Revelation is the Song of Songs. You have the bridegroom trying to find the bride and and there's all of this dialogue between both of them. And, and you can see this as sort of an event as it unfolds throughout the book. And, and of course, Song of Song ends. Song of Song sort of culminates with the bride and the bridegroom being united together as one. Mm-hmm. Which, if we look at that unveiling, of course, also happens in the crucifixion of Christ. Mm. The veil in the sanctuary is torn to pieces. And in a way that is different from the Old Testament... God can truly be present with all of his people, not just the high priest one day of the year, but truly with all of God's people through all of time. Mm, amen. And as we were talking before, Derek, I think you made a really fine point as you were talking about you know, that the veil is torn in two, and now suddenly everyone has access to the Holy of Holies, and most importantly, there's no repercussion right? This is the great gift of the new covenant, that now all people are invited into this bridal union uh, with Christ and a union that is made possible in his blood. Which is a big deal, especially for the people of that time, because when was the last time that someone suddenly became in the presence of the holiest of holies, the Ark of the Covenant? It was when the Ark was being returned to Jerusalem, It is knocked down, and and one of David's compatriots sees the contents of the ark and immediately is struck down dead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yet, because of this new covenant, because of this sort of, uh, sort of this redefining of God's relationship with his people, this presence of God in our lives is without repercussion, without Mm -hmm. the pain of death, and in fact, quite the opposite, the, the promise of eternal life. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, Derek, uh, maybe for some of our listeners, this might be hard to grasp the significance of it. Let's, let's simplify this. Now, we live in a paparazzi culture. Imagine uh, you were within close range of your favorite actor or actress, and suddenly everyone in between you and your favorite actor and actress was asked to leave, and it was just you and that person that you would love to spend time with? What would that be like? Now, this is a far cry from the reality of an Israelite and the Holy of Holies, but you can begin to grasp the significance of what was so important to uh, that faithful Israelite who would go to the temple and certainly seek to uh, enter into communication with God and, and, and speak to God in, in the presence of God there in the temple. So 
very important. Which leads me to my next point, because Derek, if you were to go to that passage in Mark 15, 38, what do we read? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That Greek word for torn is the same Greek word that is used in the baptism of Jesus, where God was tearing open the heavens, right? What does this signify? That in baptism, we are made new creations in Christ. We were just talking about how law and sacred scripture is about relationship. Well, what is the new law? I mean, this brings us back to Acts 15, where they were debating the old law and the new law, and how we no longer need to abide by the old law, which was about circumcision. But now, in the grace of Jesus Christ, we've been given a new law, and that new law is the sacrament of baptism, where we are incorporated into the very life of Christ. Once again, circumcision, external law, baptism, internal law. And the question that is before us as it relates to theology of the body, Derek, is what are we going to do with this new law that has been given to us, with this new grace that has been inscribed upon our heart? Are we going to love more fervently? Are we going to slip into this kind of spiritual dormancy where we don't live the life that God is calling us to? And so we have this decision before us. Do we decide for agape or something less? In a lot of ways, today's culture views marriage outside of the scope of love. Mm-hmm. Why do you marry someone? Well, you marry someone because either, you know, maybe the woman is already pregnant and you want to be there, you know, the man wants to be there for the child. Maybe it's because you think it would be easier financially. Maybe you become married because you and your significant other have decided that you want particular rights, you know, across each other's lives, and so you decide to get married. But that's, that's not the real purpose of marriage. None of those, all of those fall short. A, a true marriage attests to love. And like you said earlier, Joe, God is love. A true marriage should naturally attest to the reality of God. And God's love is, is free, total, faithful, and fruitful. And uh, that's why he has implanted uh, eros uh, inside of us, that we might enter into uh, that kind of fourfold dynamic of, of God's love. Speaking of love, I think there's something really important here to touch upon, and I know Christopher West touches upon this, and that's the time we spend with God. If we are in love with someone, then we are going to want to spend time with that someone. And as Catholics, we are given an extraordinary opportunity to spend extra time, more time, with God who is love in adoration in the blessed sacrament, as John Paul II once called the sacrament of love, to simply, Derek, spend time with our Lord, to gaze upon our Lord, to look upon Him face to face. It's interesting, the Latin adoratio, its root uh, is mouth, ad ora, it's mouth to mouth. Again, a very intimate uh, image, huh? I mean, mouth to mouth. This is what's going on. We are to enter into this this love affair with God in adoration, in the Blessed Sacrament. And, you know, you think about it, and I've noted this before. For me personally, Derek, and I know you're newly married, it is a powerful thing to just look at your bride, that you can actually fall more in love with her by just looking at her. And I dare say, even more so, when we gaze upon the God of history who incarnates the greatness, and the meaning of love. Well, and Christopher West in, in this chapter presents 
something that I think a lot of Catholics hear regularly from our Protestant brothers and sisters. And in, in speaking about not just adoration, but also communion during the sacred liturgy, um, you know, we, we go to receive Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. And often the critique we hear is, well, if, that's, if you truly believe that that is Christ present in the flesh, then shouldn't you be approaching on your hands and knees? Mm-hmm. And that's a powerful image. And, you know, for the practical side of making a Mass only about an hour long, if everyone were to receive on their hands and knees, Mass would suddenly become a lot longer. But I, I bring this up because it's important for each individual to realize that Christ is truly present in them. That it's, it's not just symbolic of his blood and his body, but that it is, in fact, his blood and body. Um, and as we mature in the faith, our view of the Eucharist should mature as well our reception of him in the Mass should mature as well. You know, almost sort of following the the last bit of the Catechism as it talks about Christian prayer, sort of the steps between praise, worship, and um, contemplation. You know, if we look at the, uh, the lives of the saints and the supreme joy and satisfaction that they're filled with in receiving communion— um, it, it's really a, a goal that we should strive for, to, mm-hmm. to put ourselves, to make ourselves aware that this truly is the body and blood of our Lord, mm-hmm. and that we are in his presence in adoration, but in mass, to consume him and to also be consumed by him. Amen. Well said, Derek. You know, I was talking about that pink flamingo earlier, and it's a very selective diet. We have some great saints and who were very selective in their diet. I'm thinking specifically uh, of St. Teresa of Avila, going weeks and months with only consuming uh, the Eucharist. This was her devotion, and this is why her light shined so brightly, right? So what you speak to is something that, I yes, we do all need to adhere to. You know, when I was teaching seventh grade, I had uh, one of my seventh graders raise her hand. We were talking about the Eucharist, and she said, if... What you are saying right now, Mr. H, is true, and we were talking about the true presence of Jesus Christ, then why is there not a line for blocks to see him? And what it highlights is the need for us to enter into the reverence of of what this is all about, Derek, because I do think that there's something to be said about what some people are saying. Not that we're caught up in that, because we shouldn't be, but, you know, Uh, If we are receiving the Eucharist with reverence, and we are living out our faith as He calls us to, and as the Eucharist ought to convict us to, then uh, yeah, we should be drawing people to inquire about the Eucharist. We should be drawing people to inquire about this new covenant bond, this new covenant relationship that we enter into, again, if not every day, at least every Sunday. It is the summit of our faith because it dominates the landscape of everything we do because it is the source of life. So yeah, very important. And, and that's an important analogy to really come to, an analogy from St. John Paul II, that it is not only the summit of our faith, but the source of our faith. Um, you know, Jesus says that, you know, out of the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love endures, but the greatest of these is love. Mm -hmm. And if the Eucharist truly is the sacrament of love, then our faith and our hope can be found there. Mm -hmm. And our faith and our hope reach their climax and our source there. 
Um, it, and it's an important thing to realize. And, you know, reflecting on this a little bit, I think for a lot of us, the struggle is, is that really the body and blood of Jesus Christ? And Eucharistic miracle, after Eucharistic miracle, would say, yes, emphatically it is. Um, I think especially of the miracle in um, Luciano, Italy. Luciano. Mm-hmm. Luciano, yeah. where, where, the, where the, um, the Eucharist, the communion wafer, physically turns into human tissue. Mm-hmm. And, and through the years of scientific inquiry, being able to match that tissue to human heart tissue... You know, it, it speaks really to the miracle that happens at every celebration of the Eucharist. Amen. Amen. And yeah, this is why we talk about the Eucharist. This is why um, there's a whole chapter devoted to this um, in Christopher West's book, because if we don't understand the significance of entering into this union with Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, then everything else begins to just kind of fall apart. And, and so this this has to be a point of emphasis for sure. And that if you look specifically at the Gospel of John, the the importance of this, because it's Jesus talks about this, Jesus reveals this to the people in chapter 6, really early in that Gospel of John, speaking to his body and his blood. Mm-hmm. And that unless we consume his body and blood, we will not have life within us. Amen. Um, and, you know, Jesus doesn't say consume a symbol of my body and blood. No. Um, and I don't know the Greek word, but I know that the Greek word used isn't so much a, you know, like a casual eating, but more of a gnawing. Yeah. The, the, the Greek, the transition there, I think we may have even touched upon this last week, the, is the estheon phago, and it transitions to trogo. And then it goes to this plural where, yeah, it moves from what you would normally eat, maybe say at a dinner table, to then chewing and gnawing on lamb or animal stock to then, and, and it's plural, the last use of eat, the Greek implies this constant perpetual consumption. It's uh, most fascinating. And this is why, Derek, that Paul, and we, we talked about Paul a great deal last Thursday, Paul, for all of his knowledge and for all of his understanding, the one time, the one time that he quotes Jesus from the Gospels. Now, most of his writings came before the Gospels, but the one line that comes from the mouth of Jesus is what we talked about, Mark 14, 24. This is the blood of the new covenant. So the one time he actually goes to the words of Christ, it's the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the New New Testament. Because why? When Jesus Christ says, this is the blood of the New Testament, what he's saying is, in effect, the mass... The Eucharist is the New Testament. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.